Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we enter the home stretch of Mark's gospel. We have read of Jesus' primary message that he is the king who brings the kingdom of God, and so we must repent and believe in him. We have heard of his miraculous works, his incredible teachings, his humility, his faithfulness, his compassion, even his righteous anger. And all these things have led up to the events that we'll spend the next month or so speaking about. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Beginning in chapter 14, Mark laser focuses on this unique moment. Not just in Jesus' life or that of his followers, but is what is truly the climactic moment of world history. Regardless of whether one is a believer in Jesus or not, it is hard to think of any event that has had a more profound effect on the shape of our world today. Mark signals this shift in focus on an ominous note, mentioning that the leaders of the day were looking for a way to capture and kill Jesus, but they feared the huge crowds that had gathered in the city for the celebration of Pentecost, or Passover. (laughs) Getting a little ahead of myself there. And in a portion of chapter 14 that we we didn't read this morning, we learn that Judas Iscariot will hand them their opportunity. Wedged between these two accounts of betrayal and murderous intent is the story of a woman who, to use Jesus' own words, does a beautiful thing for him. I have to say before we start walking through the passage, that is a phrase that has stuck with me as I've prepared this week. What might it be like to have Jesus say that you have done a beautiful thing for him? Many Christians long to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, and there's good reason for that. But uh, I have to admit, I wouldn't mind one day hearing the voice of Jesus say, you have done a beautiful thing for me. As we walk through our passage this morning, we will find a stark contrast, a stark contrast between this woman, between those who were present for the act and... Jesus himself. And it is a story of complete faithfulness and devotion in the face of scorn. So let's begin by looking at this woman's act. We are told that Jesus and some of the others were in the house of Simon the leper. As Jesus was reclining at the table, which was a typical posture one would have at a meal in this time period, a woman comes to him and pours a flask of ointment over his head. 
And the image we are given is a full flask being poured over Jesus' head so it is all falling down on him, anointing his entire body. It is an act of complete and costly devotion. How so? Well, let's start with this ointment, this nard. Nard was a material that was found in India. And so it would have needed to be imported into Israel. Now, if you think things are expensive to import now, you can imagine how much it would be back then when they didn't have all the technology and mass transit and all of that that we do today. Thankfully, those who are present make it clear for us just how expensive this was. In verse 5, they state that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Well, a single denarius was a day's wage. And so this nard would have been the equivalent of a year's salary. It was an extravagant blessing. And there's obvious financial cost to this action, but even though those in the room focus on, on the money aspect of this, there's a greater cost here. See, we could ask ourselves how this woman would have gotten her hands on such an expensive ointment. It's not like she could go to her local department store and pick up a bottle of the, the, the nice perfume that's in the glass case. Now, we actually know that at this time, this is something that would have been passed down. This flask of nard likely would have been a family heirloom. And it would have been given to a young woman as her bridal price. In that case, it would have subsequently been given to the eldest daughter that she had to be used for the same thing. And on and on it would go, one generation to the next. Or if the woman was to remain unmarried, it would be used to anoint her body for burial. Even in those cases, though, it is not something that would have been used all at once or in its entirety. You would have been very sparing in how you used it because it was so expensive and so special. You could think of it as, as that thing that you have that you would only ever use for a special occasion, right? Many of us have something like this, I think. I remember growing up with my mother, it was the China, right? It only came out at Christmas and Thanksgiving and you were risking life and limb if you went near it any other time. For our wedding, my, my wife and I were given a bottle of really good, really expensive scotch. Right? It cost more than any amount of money that I could possibly justify spending on, on scotch. And that bottle sat unopened for years because we couldn't come up with a good enough reason to open it. The funny thing is, we did open it, and I, can't, I couldn't tell you why. I actually don't remember. <laughs> In all likelihood, we just got tired of waiting and one day decided, well, we're opening it. I do remember it was really good, though. Really good. That's kind of what this ointment is like, right? It's that thing that you need the absolute right occasion to use. You would never just use it. And it turns out that the reason... That special, unique moment 
was blessing her Lord. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to behold an act of complete devotion, which is what this is. You see, it shows that she's placing her trust in him. She could have, she could have sold the nard. She could have had a year's worth of food with it. She could have had some sense of financial stability and security with it. But instead, she anoints Jesus for his burial. She places him above herself, using it for one of the very reasons it was given to her, to be anointed for burial. And she gives it all, literally all of it, for Jesus. She broke the flask, Mark told us. There's no saving it for a possible marriage down the road at that point. There's no putting that toothpaste back in the tube. She is completely devoted to Jesus, no matter the cost. Because in Jesus, she sees someone worthy of all that she has, who she can trust for all that she needs. We don't hear words from this woman in our passage, but her actions ring out loud and clear. This is my Lord, and I will serve and bless him with all that I have and all that I am. Come what may, I am his. What a beautiful thing it is. What a beautiful thing it is to see someone submit to the call of Christ, to commit, to them, to commit themselves to him so fully and so completely. It is the kind of devotion that he calls each and every one of us to. For if he is who he says he is, there is nothing worth holding back. No time, no money, no sense of security, none of it is worth the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. And this woman gets that. And so she gives it all to him. What a contrast it is to the religious leaders of the time who were seeking to kill him. What a contrast it is to the other people in the room who saw this take place. They see this act of devotion and they're indignant. How could you do that? How could you possibly waste this? If you're going to get rid of it, we could have sold it. We could have given the money to the poor. Mark doesn't give us the motivation of their hearts. He doesn't tell us what's going going on inside of them. He doesn't even actually identify the people. In Matthew's account of this, he places these words on the lips of the disciples. Those who theoretically knew Jesus best. John's account places these words directly in the mouth of Judas Iscariot and then tells us that he only said them because he wanted the money for himself. Mark doesn't tell us these things, but here's what we can say without hesitation. Those who were with Jesus, who ate with him, who walked with him, believed it to be a waste to bless Jesus extravagantly. By stating that this nard could have been sold and given to the poor, and their anger at the woman for doing this, 
At the very least, it indicates that in this moment, they believed the poor to be worth their time and money more than Jesus was. They have elevated the poor and needy over Jesus. Those who are on the inside, those who should have known better, have downgraded the value of their Lord. He is at best in second place. What a contrast it is to the complete and wholehearted devotion of this woman, this woman who would have been a religious outsider. And yet understood that there is nothing and no one more valuable than Jesus. And here are his people saying he's not worth it. And never mind the ultimate religious insiders, the, the scribes and the chief priests who should have been able to recognize him as their Messiah and yet were so blinded they're trying to kill him. What a contrast it is. And that mistake, the mistake made by these insiders, remains to this day something that is very easy for those of us who believe in Jesus to fall into. It is the mistake of making our good works, our spiritual practices, of more value than the one whom they are meant to point us to and to be motivated by and shaped by. It is a cautionary note that must be at the forefront of our minds and our life with Christ. As we seek to be a church that serves and blesses our city, as we seek to be a church that makes and equips disciples of all generations, as we seek to see the gospel go out in power, it cannot be about the work. In our own individual lives and in the life of our church, it cannot be about the work that we do. It has to be about Jesus. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. That is what Jesus says. This is not Jesus saying that we shouldn't care about the poor, that we should ignore them. In fact, implied in this statement is that we will do good for them. But none of those good works can be elevated above Jesus himself, because if we do that, over time, we will care about the works and the works alone. Our church will become a place where we want to be known and filled with people for our own glory, not for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is giving the same warning here that he gave to the church in Ephesus that we find in Revelation 2. He told them that they had been steadfast, they had been enduring in the work of the gospel, staying about the work of the gospel, but he tells them, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And their love of the work of the gospel, they had abandoned their love of the one who was the living gospel. They had abandoned their love of Jesus. He had become secondary at best. And it is a warning for all who claim to love Jesus. We must not lose our first Love, but rather we are to seek his honor and glory, blessing him with our complete and utter and costly devotion. And we let that propel us out 
into loving service of others. I understand that this can be a challenge. It's a challenge for many of us, in part because as we seek to give ourselves wholly and completely to Jesus, we often do face pushback. And often it comes from surprising places, just as it did in this passage. Friends or family members who can't understand why we would spend so much time at church. Why would we bother praying or reading the scriptures? People who chastise us when they find out that we would be silly enough to give of our time and money to the church or to charities. I know of one individual who gave away such a portion of his salary to his church that when he submitted his taxes, the CRA demanded all of his giving receipts because they didn't believe that one who made what he did would give so much of it away. Now, I don't know if that's an advertisement for giving or not, but that is the world that we live in. One that comes with scorn and anger and even disbelief at those who would devote themselves to Jesus. And so, yes, it can be hard, but Jesus tells us it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to be wholly devoted to Jesus because he's worth it. All that we have to offer, he is worth it. Not because we receive honor or glory for it or that we have the nicest church with all the best ministries, but because he is who he says he is. And he has shown his worthiness and complete devotion to the Father. The Father who called him to drink from a cup that none of us could have. And in doing so, modeled what it is to be wholly faithful and devoted. The end of our passage this morning, we read these words. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus was called to die so that we might live. He blesses us extravagantly, though not one of us has earned it. And right before these amazing words, these words of faithfulness and sacrifice, words that we Anglicans grow far too familiar and accustomed to hearing, Before these words, Mark tells us that Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. A traitor is at his table and yet he eats with them. And if we were to continue reading, we would hear of how every one of the disciples would abandon him and yet he goes to the cross for him. He goes to the cross for each And every one of them. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. Jesus is perfectly faithful. Perfectly devoted to his Father. And so he dies for sinful people. 
And he rises again so that his sinful people might be made clean and forgiven, though each of us has fallen. It is not the worthy that Jesus died for, but the unworthy, even the traitors, even the cowardly and the unfaithful. And you know what that tells me? If Jesus would sit and eat with a traitor, if he would die for those who claim one thing and then live another, it tells me that there's forgiveness for all of us. That when he said his body was broken and his blood shed and poured out for many, that he meant it. And each and every week that we celebrate the sacrament and we hear these words, we are reminded of that grace and that goodness and that sacrifice that he made on our account. And what's more than that, through the grace that he conveys to us in his sacrament, we can have our faith strengthened and renewed and shown over and over again that though we are faithless, he remains faithful. The heart of the Savior is complete devotion to the Father so that he might bless those who are poor. And there is none more poor than the sinner in need of redemption. Look to your perfect Savior. Look to him and find the redemption you long for and need. Having been brought to him and made a part of his church in baptism, come and receive him in the grace that he gives us in the sacrament of his body and blood. For his self-giving is something that is beautiful to behold. Forgiveness was bought with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, and it was bought for you. You who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus died for you. And by faith, we can receive his grace. We can be devoted to Christ. And in an act of grace in the sacrament, we are given a foretaste of what life will be like with him in the end. When Jesus will gather us around his table and we will sit and eat with him, sinner, traitor, coward, all who have been forgiven. We will eat with him and be blessed with his presence as we see him face to face. The devotion of this woman is something to celebrate and admire. She was a sinner and blessed a perfect Lord. How much greater, though, the work and blessing of Jesus who died for the imperfect sinner. How much greater he is than all our works, than all others. And he calls us to the same devotion that he showed, staying with him and blessing him even when it's unpopular, even when it opens us up to scorn. Why would you do that? Why would you give that? Why would you be a part of all of that? Why would you be devoted to him? Those are the questions we can hear. And it's all because that while I was a sinner, Jesus died for me. And by his grace, he has claimed me. He has purchased me by his shed blood. That I was crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. 
all that I have, all that I can offer, all that I can give is nothing compared to what he has done for me. And nothing, nothing at all comes even close to his incomparable value and worth. The life of complete devotion to Jesus is a beautiful thing. Come to Jesus and find in him forgiveness and faithfulness. Come to him and find the beauty of a savior who is holy and perfectly devoted. Come to him and enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is a beautiful thing to behold the faithfulness and perfect devotion of our Savior. Father, we pray that you would bring us to him, that you would bring us to yourself, that we might know him, that we might love him and be loved fully by him. Father, we pray that you would put each and every one of us, put within each and every one of us a heart of complete devotion to you, not holding anything back, but like this woman, giving all that we are to you. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would move us to do that so that we might know Jesus and be with him for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.